Hi, welcome to season four of the Aced It podcast, where we translate science into sense. So you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, coming to you from Sam Houston State University in Texas, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. Aced It is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out our website, jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. Can a physician successfully treat a medical problem without understanding what works best for the patient? Let's imagine a paternalistic model of treating a patient's diabetes, one in which the physician takes an asymmetric approach as the expert, imparting knowledge onto the layman. This doctor might meet with a diabetic patient, and having spent 12 years learning about the human body and the science of fighting disease and illness, might fancy themselves in the position to explain to the patient exactly what they must do and exactly what medicine they must take to fight their diabetes and improve their quality of life. And upon giving the patient their well-informed expert instructions, they send the patient on their way. Several months later, they see the patient in their office and are shocked and annoyed to see the patient's blood sugar is through the roof. Their legs are swollen and they're complaining of constant fatigue. The physician, whether they recognize it or not, is now at a crossroads. It might be that their annoyance with the patient's behavior further calcifies a thought that occasionally bubbles up in their mind. You can't help people who won't help themselves. Or it might bring to mind some questions like, I wonder which part of the plan they struggled with, or I wonder why they struggled. This line of thinking might prompt them to ask more questions of the patient, which in turn might shed new light on all sorts of problems and new solutions, but might also illuminate for the doctor a blind spot in their own behavior in not thinking to work collaboratively in the first place. Treating chronic disease is both a science and an art. It involves chemical processes, mental processes, environmental considerations, and behavioral processes. The same is true for treating opioid use disorder. As we know, the FDA has approved three classes of medications for treating opioid use disorder. Methadone, a full agonist, buprenorphine, a partial agonist, and naltrexone, an opioid antagonist. But as comes as... No surprise, most prisons and jails offer no medication, or they may offer only one type of medication. To offer all three is rare indeed. And while this is changing, based partly on changes to the legal landscape and a diffusion of the interventions taking place slowly across the country, programs or would-be programs might find themselves in a paradox whereby an increase in medication availability coincides with disappointing outcomes that only further stigmatizes the use of those medications. In other words, jail, medical, and custody staff around the country might experience the calcifying effect of certain sediments, like you can't help people who don't want to be helped, when in fact, they should just be asking more questions. Dr. Eliana Kaplowitz and a team of scholars in Rhode Island had the advantage of being able to ask those questions with people incarcerated in a prison that has a comprehensive program for opioid use disorder that offers all three medications. 
In 2016, Rhode Island was the first state to implement a comprehensive statewide program that provides access to all three medications for opioid use disorder to individuals incarcerated at the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. The program allows individuals to continue or initiate treatment with all three available medical options. The program was designed to optimize patient retention and adherence. The patient and provider jointly make medication decisions. Patients and providers can also adjust and change treatment plans as needed. The landscape provides a perfect opportunity to explore patient preferences and attitudes about these medications. The research team interviewed 40 participants, mostly white males. Half were receiving methadone, a little less than half were receiving buprenorphine, and one person received naltrexone. Half of the participants began treatment before arrest, the other half only began once incarcerated. The researchers asked open-ended questions centered on four topics of interest, the type of medication patients preferred, how they received medication in the community, the method of administering the medication, and any experience of stigma in connection with these medications. They found that participants did indeed prefer a particular type of medication over the others, and that those preferences were largely influenced by medications accessible in the community. Some participants appreciated the structured mode of delivering methadone, which requires frequent visits to the clinic, as they felt this process improved their own sense of accountability in adhering to treatment. As noted by one 38-year-old man, quote, I was on Suboxone, like I told you before, but the Suboxone for me, my mind frame, wasn't strong enough to just take it one every day like I needed. My foundation, my tools, wasn't all there to stay clean. My mind, it wasn't all set up. So I was getting the Suboxone and I was selling it to get fentanyl to get high. Now I'm going to do methadone. When I leave here, I never have been on methadone in the community, but I'm going to try it now. I've got to go get it every day. I can't take it home. I can't do nothing with it, unquote. While for others, having to go to the clinic daily discouraged them from remaining in the program. As one 42-year-old man put it, quote, listen, if you're living in a gutter, it can be a life-changing and to your benefit. But if you come out of the gutter and you start to succeed like some people do, then it's also a fucking albatross, unquote. And many of the participants who did not appreciate the structure referred to methadone delivery as, quote, liquid handcuffs, unquote. Another factor that plays a major role in participant preference was the way treatment is administered. Some didn't like the taste of buprenorphine tabs, which fit under your tongue and dissolve. Others shied away from medicine that is delivered via injection as the process because they thought it could trigger more problem substance use. This left methadone as the only option. How the medication made them feel and the degree to which it reduced their cravings also played a major role in why participants preferred one drug over another. Certain medications made people feel sick. For example, one 35-year-old man said, quote, I like methadone better because Suboxone makes me nauseous. Methadone don't, unquote. While a 55-year-old man noted his troubles with methadone, explaining that, quote, It had me down, sleepy. For two days, I was really down. I got there on a Friday, and on Monday, I got out of jail, and I was still feeling it, unquote. And people differed in how each medication impacted their cravings, with some saying that buprenorphine didn't help, 
and others saying they didn't like the way methadone made them feel. For some, it was important that the medication did not give them any feelings of being high at all, while others liked the ease with which you could slip up and return to using street drugs and then get back on your methadone treatment without feeling sick. And finally, for some, stigma, held by both others and self, affected their medication choice. One participant shared how these medications influenced their status in a 12-step program like NA. The 41-year-old woman noted that at NA meetings, you weren't considered in recovery if you were on buprenorphine or methadone, saying, quote, like, they don't recognize your clean time. They gave me more of a hard time and to people on methadone than they did with Suboxone, unquote. This insight into how preference works is critically important because these medications only work if people take them. Preference likely influences whether the patient will continue taking the medication after release. And preferences are shaped by all manner of things, like experiences with the medications and the structure of receiving medications in the community upon release. MOUD programs in the community and in correctional settings should work to honor individuals' ability to choose which medication will work best for them by offering all three classes of current FDA-approved options. While future clinical trials and researchers should undertake efforts to find a biological explanation for this difference, just knowing the important role that preference plays is an insight to be ignored at our peril. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.gmuace.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACED is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACED.